but we then give you the ability to hit your app, say, yes, it's you, it's not fraud, boom, done, yeah. right? But that, what I just described, might have been a $20 million project to change all of the systems just yeah. to allow that easy thing. Welcome to Unmiss, your go-to digital marketing hub. I'm Anatoly Ulatovsky, here with expert tips and exclusive chats to boost your online game. Let's get started. Hello, good people. Welcome to our show. Hello, bad people. Welcome to our show. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Today we are going to discuss about design thinking in big enterprises. How it's important today to create the right strategy, how to create the right design that will provide great results and many other things we are going to discuss on this podcast. So stay tuned until the end. You can ask a lot of questions. You can get great answers. And uh, yeah, I'm so excited to discuss a lot more with Jim Panishil. How are you? I'm awesome. If you're not a good person or a bad person, who are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I think everyone can say they are good. But let's be honest. You know, sometimes I'm bad. You know, uh, if I have bad mood, I can be bad. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to criticize yourself. But I think everyone is good. You know, everyone is good with all mindset. Uh, so I, I, I hope uh, good people uh, sometimes can change mindset uh, to be bad people. Why not? You know, <laughs> just it's better to be yourself and uh, to do some legal stuff. <laughs> so, I, I like yeah. to think I like to think we're all good, but we do bad things. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Okay, Jeb. Before we start, just tell more about yourself, experience, background, and anything that can help our listeners to learn more about you. Um, so I've got a, um, a long career, um, 30 plus years, mostly in financial services. Um, and it's, um, uh, it's what one might call a portfolio, um, career. It's, you know, I didn't take a sort of a usual path. I started as a salesperson. Um, I ended up help designing and building the very first online brokerage for bank of America in the mid nineties. Cause I was 25 and I knew what the interwebs were that made me qualified. Um, I've been a consultant. I've been an analyst. Um, I've run a. I've been a general manager of, a, uh, you know, a large product unit. I've been a product guy. Um, I'm a two-time CMO. I've led rebrands at large companies. I've done B2B SaaS. I've done B2C, um, and now I'm running a, um, you know, a customer, you know, leading sort of customer experience and, um, you know, building up some new modern marketing at another large enterprise. So um, big company, small company, product guy digital guy, AI guy, marketing guy. I've had a pretty diverse career. Oh, nice, nice. Love it, love it. So you touch all sides uh, of, yeah. <laughs> of this coin. Uh, okay, Jim, uh, let's start about finance. Uh, I'm interested about this topic because we can help a lot customers in this niche. Uh, and uh, we often get uh, customers, uh, big enterprises who are asking for the right direction and uh, for example when i get them i can check what they have the benchmark and i see a generic strategy nothing special just to uh they usually analyze competitors and do the same i usually tell them we don't need to compete with others we need to find our ways our strong side and uh, stick with that because uh, for example let's imagine i wanna film videos for, for YouTube. Can I compete with Mr. Beast? He's good with that, you know. So especially in finance, 
billion dollar companies on this news and uh, for some clients we got great results from zero traffic to plus 2000 people a day in extremely competitive niche uh, from scratch with the right strategy uh, can you tell your methods uh, if you are talking about finance it's important to have trust it's important to have the right strategy uh, if you have a new client what do you usually do how to start to analyze how you can help and support them yeah well usually i'm on the client side so i'll just i'll, I'll take the the lens from that i, I think i mean financial services is difficult um in some ways because we also have a lot of regulations um and you know in some ways it's not it's it's competitive but not so competitive only so many companies can provide you know um healthcare coverage to a hundred million people yeah. um right you know so it, it's competitive in certain ways but but not in others um but the number one thing that they will do most of the time is avoid risk right or manage manage risk and so think about you know even how you frame the question that makes finding those differentiations and doing things different that's more of a mental challenge for you know a, a financial services organization i don't care how big or small you are because regulators think that way too so i mean i'll give you a great example and this is you know years ago but when the internet first rolled around um the sec couldn't decide how do you regulate um, an email because in the analog world a written piece of correspondence is reg you know is monitored and reviewed one way um but a phone call wasn't so what's an email is it the replacement for a phone call and we don't regulate it or is it the replacement for a piece of written correspondence and we do regulate it right take you know crypto is it a currency is it a transaction lever and a, a payment facilitator is it a form of legal contract and so I think that's where it becomes a little bit more difficult in some of the regulated industries to move as fast as those of us who would look from the outside and say, God, it's so obvious. Why wouldn't you do that? Um, because it's not so obvious um, uh, in or exactly how to apply those things. AI is a great example of that right now. The large organizations really struggling, not because they don't see it and they don't want to do it, but how do you do it safely? Right. You know, and, and this is just like a big car company thinking about, you know, self-driving versus Tesla. And, you mm -hmm. know, we can see, you know, look, Tesla just had to do a, you know, OTA update for every single car, which is almost unheard of. Yeah. Uh, right. So it's, it, it's, it can be a challenge, right? That doesn't, that now a lot of companies hide behind that as an excuse, um, not to try new things and to, to experiment, but it isn't as easy always as it appears from the, from the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And uh, do you usually read or learn these regulations uh, to specific case, uh, analyze uh, what you can implement, what you can't, what is better to avoid? So uh, gi give some suggestions how to do it right. Yeah. So go back to my email example. And I realize it's an old one, but it's a really nice, clean one. The, the, you, you asked the question right, which is, is there precedent? And the answer is actually nobody knows. And that's why they're worried. If we treat it like it's a phone call and we don't monitor it and then the regulators decide oh no you should have done that you become the very first person or company who gets a fine and then it's the precedent and we establish the rule um and that's exactly what happened in this case some companies decided to take the risk and move forward they then became the ones who wrote the first check now everybody knew what to do um 
Uh, no, but there's a second piece of your question. And I think it's actually, if you want to be a driver of change, and it is where design thinking, I think, becomes really useful. You want to be a driver of change in a larger organization or where you have regulatory, let's call it ambiguity. Um, you have to actually now deeply understand what the regulations are to try to help the lawyers or the compliance people frame and think about the issue differently. So I'll give you another example. It was another large bank um, and we were trying to go onto social media, trying to can talk to the lawyers who couldn't even get onto Twitter and explain what Twitter was. Um, and actually, this is one of my favorite stories. We got a call from IT and they said they wanted us to do um, a vulnerable, a vulnerability assessment of Twitter, you know, an ethical hack, which is what we would do with any of our own software or, you know, any cloud provider. And I had to explain to them, we don't actually own Twitter. Um, that's just our page on Twitter. And it made no sense to them. Um, so that's kind of a lot of what you have to do is understand how they think, put yourself in that frame of reference, help them have, you know, give them metaphors and, and other sort of examples, analogs that help them then get comfortable with this new thing that you're trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Elon Musk uh, doesn't learn any regulations before tweeting that <laughs> he can learn, <laughs> he can get some uh, circumstances <laughs> why he needs to do something, you know. So, yeah, uh, it, it, I understand him because he doesn't have a lot of time, you know, to learn about that. He tweets then uh, when people, uh, I don't know, just tell it's wrong, not right, and then he started to learn <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, look, you get, you know, I don't get into a, a deep debate about Tesla or, or Elon for mm -hmm. that matter. Um, but, you know, it is an interesting thing, right? The Valley has this ethos of, you know, um, break it and fix it. Um, you know, when you do that with cars, I don't know, people might die. So do we really want to break it and fix it? Um, and, and, it's, and it's a hard one. It's a good ethos, right? That's how we get things like SpaceX, right? Throw the rules out and, and, and take some chances. Um, do we want pharmaceutical companies doing that? Um, hey, let's take some chances with, uh, mm -hmm. with, you know, and not do the rigorous testing. And so that's always the balance, um, you know, is because the minute something goes bad, then we all scream and go, oh, my goodness, why didn't everybody protect us? And how could they possibly do that? So breaking things sounds great until something goes wrong and we want to, you know, blame somebody for it. Yeah, nice, nice. Uh, I want to ask about design thinking. Uh... Can you explain what it means for someone who is not familiar with that? Uh, because, you know, I think uh, people have different levels of understanding, but it's important to understand, uh, I don't know, clarification about this uh, terminology. Yeah. yeah, well, boy, I mean, I bet if you asked 100 people, you'd get 150 answers. Um, and I'm not <laughs> sure mine is any better than, than than anybody else's. But But I think, you know, the way I think about it, and, you know, I've been using early versions of design thinking for, I don't know, 25 years before they were calling it design thinking, right? But, you know, I think about it in, you know, two ways. In the old world, um, uh, you know, you, somebody would design a product, they'd brand it, put an advertisement out, and that was the promise of an experience. Geez, if you buy a Mercedes, then you will feel awesome and you'll be, you know, cool and whatever, you, you know, you buy a BMW and that's, you're going to be, you know, like an F1 driver. And there's a long cycle between when you um, got that image and that impression and you actually purchase the product and experience. And now what's happened is the product is the experience, 
Um, now, so how do you then, how do you design that experience? How do you have the frame of reference of the outside world and the customer? Um, and to the earlier discussion, how do you start with no rules and then apply rules? Um, so there's a famous design thinking experiment that, you know, lots of companies use um, where you put um, uh, raw spaghetti, um, uh, you know, just pieces of spaghetti and uncooked and uh, marshmallows. And mm -hmm. you ask a te team of people to see how big a structure they can design with the pieces of spaghetti and the, the marshmallows. Um, and they've done experiments where they put a bunch of six-year-olds in a room with the same spaghetti and ma marshmallows as a bunch of corporate people. And the six-year-olds always win because they don't start with rules. They yeah. just experiment and, and try things. And they're like, because there's no, there's no one way that it should work. But as adults, we start to learn rules and patterns. And so design thinking is, is, is designed. It's, you know, it's, it's primarily set to how do we understand really the underlying issues um, and the underlying needs of the user and then um, apply without rules and parameters and then start to apply those so we can come up with the, the the right solutions and creative solutions you know go back to spacex good design thinking says geez why do we have to what, what are the assumptions what are, you know elon would call it first principles thinking um right why do we assume that a rocket is only worth one use right mm -hmm. that changes the entire economics of 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 spacex there's a lot of assumptions when you get into a large company about the way things worked because they have always worked that way. And so how do you question those and bring in an outside perspective and systematically understand where are the critical moments that matter to do something different? And where's a lot of throwaway stuff that, you know, people will say they want it, but they don't care really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nice. Love it, love it. Uh, let's talk about strategy. Um, can you tell your methods how to create strategy? Uh, before um, crafting this design thinking and to explain to others. And let me explain why I'm asking about that. I mean, like, uh, I think it's important to collect data before doing something, uh, to collect data, to analyze the market. And um, once uh, Jeff Bezos got a research team about a new product, and uh, this team asked him to give more time to analyze this product, uh, the market uh, demands of this product, and he denied, he, he, he told, you know, we have enough data. It's enough data to understand. And this product was Alexa. Today, almost all homes in the US have this product. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that Jeff Bezos has this intuition to understand. It's enough data. Uh, and I see when people collect more data and might it might confuse, you know, to create strategy. You don't know where to take. It doesn't matter. It's not only about design thinking, about any strategy. When you have a lot of data, you want to do a lot, but you have limited resources. So tell your methods how to choose the right data, how to collect data and create the right strategy with design thinking. Well, I mean, that's it's an unknowable question. Um, what, how much is enough, um, <laughs> right? Right, Because, you know, because there's both sides of that. On the one hand, Lots of companies and people don't collect any data. They mm -hmm. do what I love to call navel gazing, right? I like it, therefore everybody will like it. So I'll build it, right? I mean, how many mm -hmm. of us have, you know, been forced to change a web page or a piece of design or something because the CEO didn't like it, um, right? As if he is the, or he or she is the, you know, the representative of the customer. 
The flip side is you can easily, to your point, get caught in analysis paralysis. So I think the, the, the part of this is you have to understand what's the risk of failure. Um, and let me give you an example. When I think about taking a new job or when I counsel people on taking a new job, you know, the where and, and actually when I think about any strategy, I always start with if I'm wrong and this goes sideways, in fact, it goes sideways in the worst possible way, can I live with the outcome? Right. Mm -hmm. Or what is the outcome? So I had a friend who was looking at a job to move from New York to San Diego. Um, and I'm like, OK, great. You get out there for a year. Forty percent of new executives um, don't make it 12 months. Um, now you're in San Diego. You've moved your whole family out here. You bought a house. You've sold a house. Can you find a new job in the industry you want? If the answer is yes, take it. If the answer okay. is no, it's not worth that. Then the risk was too good. You needed more information um uh kind of thing and i think this is the that this is the art there sometimes look put alexa out there in the universe what's the, what's the worst that happens people don't buy it so we spent a bunch of money we already built it um we spent a bunch of money it doesn't work but we'll learn that's new data right this is the whole principle of of you know um uh lean thinking and you know mvps get it out there get real feedback iterate fast or fail fast and determine you shouldn't spend any more money because you were totally um, totally wrong. So the real question is, what is the data you need to commit enough resource to get to an MVP to then you can get real world information? And what are the consequences of real world drug de drug development? If you think about it, is this you spend a lot of years to get to something that's usable to test first on animals or first on AI, then on animals and ultimately then on humans before we send it out to seven or nine billion people or whatever we've got. So, you know, you've got to, if you think about that, that's, that's sustained um, and continuous data collection um, that says now commit more resource or go all in. You know, I, I don't know enough about the Alexa story, but I'll bet that we didn't see the full weight of Amazon behind Alexa yeah. until much later. But his intuition was we have enough to put it out the door and to start to get user feedback and see what happens. Yeah, nice. Well explained. Um, I remember when Mark Zuckerberg said about the risk, the biggest risk is not to take any risk. So <laughs> we need to take the risk, but we need to analyze. Um, if we lost, yeah, it's part of the job. Uh, I, I lost many times in my life. I started for some projects invested a lot of money, resources, hired a big team and uh, gave up after three years, you know, <laughs> uh, because I hated Monday. I loved Friday and uh, we had the goal to fill the market gap. We found this gap, but then when I got it, it's not my passion. I decided to leave. So, yeah, but sometimes we can take the risk. I don't know. Probably I, I could find this passion, you know, during the process, but I didn't. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> You know, so much of it is, I mean, you know, the older I get and I'll tell you the, the more I realize, and this is not useful advice, but except for perspective, how much of it is just luck. Um, you can you can see things. You can be way out ahead of the market. That doesn't mean it's the right time. Um, you know, just about anything that any of us think of as great advances, you know, um, you know, we didn't know that that was the moment where the market was ready and it was going to be accepted. And we ignore everything that came before, right? You think about, you know, we talk about Steve Jobs and, and the iPod um, or the iPhone. It's not like for 20 years, there hadn't been people developing PDAs and MP3 players and smartphones, et cetera. The market wasn't ready. 
um, right? And it's generally not ready until it's ready. And sometimes you just don't know. So you're right, you got to take risks. Um, but, you know, as they say, you also have to know when to fold them. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the hard part, right? Because where's the, you know, on the one hand, they will tell you, right? Stay committed, stick with your passion. Don't take no, don't believe the haters right on through. <laughs> Some, sometimes the information come from the universe is real. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and sometimes you just get lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And for me, it's not a bad thing. If you give up, if you hate it, give up. We, everyone can make wrong choice and, uh, doesn't listen when someone can tell, never give up. If you hate it, <laughs> give up, you know, find something else, what you like, you know, to do more. Uh, Jim, I want to ask how to transfer uh, this information to decision makers, to uh, big uh, enterprises. For example, if you created the strategy of design thinking, you want to implement it. And according to data, many companies implement only 40% of all tips and recommendations. For example, uh, someone paid you, let's imagine, 100K. Good money. And you need to help them to create this strategy uh, to implement design thinking. But uh, it's a big company. Uh, many things to do. They need to develop innovate products to compete with competitors to update what they have. But uh, they need to start something new to adopt uh, that they didn't ha have experience before. So your tips how to do it right to transfer this data and uh, to explain importance of implementation. So, boy, that's a complicated question. But I think the... The thing that most people who've never worked in a large organization don't appreciate is just how hard it is to do things in large organizations, um, right? If you if you haven't read Inverse Dilemma, that's the royal you, not just you, Anatoly, but you haven't read it. It's an older book. It's like 1998 or 97 from Clay Christensen. And he, he describes the problem perfectly, which is successful companies are actually built not to do anything new. They're built to maximize the success they've already had. The whole system is built that way. Um, and so you're literally asking the system to go against itself to try something new. Um, and so the, yeah, start with that mindset. Um, and the second thing is, you know, and I can only say this from, you know, both from my, my experience on both sides, you have to find the right person that can translate that new thing into something that the company inside can absorb and do and almost feel first before it goes all in so you know a, a good example of this when i got to um i was at citibank many many years ago i actually helped launch citibank on social media i go back to that example i was saying about twitter that was me in fact the very first twitter account for citibank um for customer service at ask city which i think is still live it had my face mm -hmm. on it because mm -hmm. um, they put my ugly mug because they don't want to put the logo on because they were worried about the risk um uh -huh. so there was less risk of putting my ugly face on um, uh -huh. than putting on the Citibank logo but one of the one of the ways that i did that and we were working with an agency helping us evaluate all the other opportunities and everybody had crazy ideas about how we would use social media for x or y or z and this is 2009 mind you it's not this is not yesterday. Um, and what I understood about Citibank that nobody from the outside could understand is the biggest line item, the biggest part of the expense base of the retail business 
was customer service in the call centers. And so strategically, we decided to start with online customer or social media customer service, not because I thought it was necessarily the best social media strategy or the most innovative, or et cetera. But if I could help customer service using Twitter for City, that had a profound, a big, meaningful impact inside on the economics. And if I can make an economic difference to the company, then I can go get more budget and they'll try new things. And so some of my crazier ideas, like I wanted to run, and you know, this will really date me, but I wanted to run basically a Black Friday promotion using Foursquare um, and some of our co-branded partners so that when you checked into Best Buy, as an example, on Black Friday, we would tell you exactly where to find the Sony Bravia television for $10 in the back corner, as long as you bought something else with your Citibank credit card. It's an interesting idea, right? Location, Early location-based marketing, real-time decision-making, et cetera. But the company's brain would melt thinking about that newness. We didn't know what people would do. So I could start with customer service that gave me and social media legitimacy and, and you know, um, um, uh, something the company could understand and that then gave me the right to try some of the other new things. Um, and that's the thing, when you're helping a company think those through, you have to think about where is the new thing that fits closest to the company and will make enough of a difference. Because the minute you make a difference economically, now you have people's attention. Then you'll have the executive's attention. They may not really understand what you're doing, but they understand that you know what you're doing and you have a positive impact on the company. And then they become much more open to some of the other crazy things. You have to almost earn the right to take more risk. Yeah, nice. Love it, love it. Uh, I want to ask more about customer support. Uh, uh, and uh, I remember when once I uh, uh, decided to buy uh, petrol oil, uh, uh, I don't remember where, in, in one gas station. So I decided to buy gas and um, uh, my bank declined the operation. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, and uh, it's just like uh, $40, not a lot. Then I called them. Uh, and at that time, I, I had only one card in my pocket. <laughs> uh, and uh, a, a lot of money on this card, enough, more than $40. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was tough to achieve them, to call them. And I spent like two hours. Uh, in, in this call, just to wait when someone will respond. Then someone respond and told me, you need to go to the office. I came to the office. Uh, I scheduled <laughs> this meeting. Uh, when I came to the office, they replied to me, we can't decide this issue. You need to call to this special number because only these people can understand. Uh, probably that was fraud operation. Fraud? In Shell, $40 mm -hmm. for gas, you know, yeah. So. Then I called to this number and I wasted like uh, eight hours to decide this issue to unblock my card. And can you and you mentioned about Citibank? I think uh, all banks can have such issues today, not many years ago. It's it's it happens today. So tell how to simplify this experience. Okay, if you uh, especially big banks, they can support like million customers. It's tough. I understand it's tough to help all of them uh, to have big team but we have ai we have many things to do today like uh, ai assistance uh, other issues so tell your methods how to simplify this experience uh, for customers boy i mean i spent my career 
trying to attack those issues. <laughs> you know, I, I, so let's start with why does that happen? That you might not, you, you think of it, wow, this is dumb. It was $40 at a Shell gas station, wherever the heck it was. Yeah. And what you may not know, and I'm making this up, so I don't know it, but let's imagine, um, is that that has been a gas station where um, some credit card fraud ring has been taking stolen credit cards and spending lots of money. So they flag the gas station. It has yeah. nothing to do with you. It has to do with the gas station, um, right? Uh, so then you get into the policies. Um, so actually, let me give you, I'll, I'll go back to, I feel like I'm picking on poor Citibank, but these stories are so old. Hopefully nobody at Citibank um, will get upset about this. Um, when I was launching on Citibank, um, we ended up in a PR crisis because mm -hmm. um, a very famous um, political communications director tried to open up an account at Citibank um, the account was opened 60 days later, the account was frozen when he called to find why the account was frozen. They told him it was because his company was inappropriate. Um, uh, the company actually became fab. You might remember fab. It was that online retail site. Um, it's kind of cool. But when, when he, when Jason first raised the money to build fab, he actually was trying to build a gay social network. Unbeknownst to Jason or anybody else, even at Citibank, 20 years before, well, 10, sorry, 15 years before when the internet came along, Citi had written a policy that said we wouldn't support, we wouldn't open up accounts that, you know, were in, you know, the pornography industry or, you know, sort of inappropriate industries. Well, that policy still existed. Somebody looked his account, saw a blog post, decided that that fed into that category, shut the account. It became a PR disaster. He's on Twitter. I'm using press releases. Um, I got 50 people on phone calls. He's tweeting be in between my phone calls. So you see the whole policy is everything is designed for one world and the world changed too fast. So it's hard, though, because when you know Citibank to change its policy, that's 200 million cardholders. And that is it took me 50 people just to write a press release. In fact, to get a decision to write a press release. So we had to go back and say, let's rethink our entire process because we can't operate in the social media phase, which now really gets to the answer to your question. And this is actually where design thinking is quite useful. Okay, why did it take us? How did we end up flagging your card? Why, what was the policy? And then how do we get it cleared? And why do we require you to go to a branch to get that cleared? Um, and I mean, there's about 17 different policies and procedures and steps inside of your little universe, but that might require a thousand people to alter systems and systems that have been coded since the 1950s. Um, so changing them isn't so easy. Um, so I know it sounds like it should be, this is the most logical, easy thing. When you actually unpack it, it becomes a much bigger thing to, to change. But companies then have to be committed to understand the process end to end. That's again, what design thinking should help. You. How do I actually understand the entire experience end to end? What is happening and why? Where are the trip points? that would cause this to go sideways. How do we make it so that somebody at the gas station, we properly flag it for fraud for the reason I cited, that's been a, a fraudster's haven, but we then give you the ability to hit your app, say, yes, it's you, it's not fraud, boom, done. Yeah. Right, but that, what I just described, might've been a $20 million project to change all of the systems just yeah. to allow that easy thing. Yeah, nice, love it, love it. Uh, I want to ask about mistakes. Um, yeah, uh, in my life, I, I made a lot of mistakes. 
even terrible mistakes, uh, slight mistakes. I keep doing them. I don't know how to learn something new without doing mistakes. So I start from best practices, generic strategies. You mentioned about PR, for example, uh, when I started my PR, uh, I wrote a bunch of press releases, pitch all of them, got zero mentions, zero results, nothing. But I learned how it works. Then we change approaches, hired experts who can write for Forbes, Bloomberg. Um, then uh, we uh, found right tools, uh, uh, learn how to find great journalists, uh, relevant journalists. And today we got great results, uh, mentions on CNN, uh, Dow Jones, uh, Coindesk, big websites, prominent websites, uh, by, uh, by sharing something new, valuable, to know how it works. Uh, but I started with mistakes. So I want to ask you if you can list common mistakes in design thinking from your experience that companies can avoid before doing something. Wow. Um, well, so, boy, the, the, if you, I think, well, for, let's, let's first, let's take the, the, the crux of the issue. There is not a single successful person in this universe that hasn't made mistakes. In fact, yeah. I will argue the most successful people in the universe have actually made the most mistakes. Just like, you know, the, uh, you know, the most successful hitters in baseball um, also strike out the most. Um, uh, you know, they, they fail a lot. But the issue is yeah. not not making a mistake. The issue is not learning and adjusting and getting better. Um, and so you just have to start with mistakes are there. You know, I actually think if you even I, I hate calling things failures, um, they're just lessons. So the question is, can you learn yeah. lessons fast enough? Um, right. And, you know, uh, this is a little bit of a side story, but I tell people this in, you know, career and new situations, you know, if you're a baby, um, you know, and you live in the Savannah, you better learn quickly that lions eat babies, um, you know, because you're going to learn that lesson one way or the other, you're going to get eaten or you're going to learn to avoid the lions. And so the question, you know, the failure is only not learning the lesson fast enough that it doesn't have, you know, large consequences. In design thinking, I think companies, you know, often make two, you know, big mistakes. The, the two biggest mistakes are they start with their existing frame of reference and try to work out as opposed to think about the new frame of reference and work backwards. And so, you know, I like to describe myself sometimes as somebody who can, I can both elevate my head off of my neck and see the world for what could be with no constraints and possibilities. The, my real skill or superpower is I can then put the, my head back on my neck and say, all right, how do I do that inside of this large complex place that has all kinds of blockers and, and you know, um, constraints and limits and, and, and other things um, and make it apply to here. That's the hardest thing in design thinking is to take, you know, what looks great on paper because, you know, you know, communism looks great on paper. It doesn't scale. You know, libertarian looks great on paper. It also doesn't scale. Um, so that's awesome if you've got a group of 150 people. That's not good if you have 300 million people, yeah. right? These things do not scale. Um, so if you're trying to build something that scales, just because it looks great on paper doesn't mean that it supports yeah. expan expansion and growth. And, and so the first thing is, you, you know, understand that what happens on paper doesn't necessarily apply to real life and you're going to have to pivot. But the most important thing is to start with no rules and then apply rules, then apply constraints and say, what do we do now? Can we live with it? Can we work around it? I'll go back to the SpaceX example. If you start with, if we could make a rocket 
that we could reuse, we could totally change space travel and, you know, cargo transport, et cetera. What hadn't happened in 70 years at NASA or the Russian Soviet or Russian space agency or anybody else for that matter was they had the original rockets for good reasons were only usable once and nobody bothered to step back and say, what could we make something that could be used more than once? That little, I mean, what an amazing yeah. insight that looks so obvious. Now it might be hard, but that's the key of design thinking is you're literally looking at the world as it is, you're resetting assumptions. And then you're yeah. saying, do those things still apply or can we adjust? And sometimes the, they're still there. You have to wait for the technology to get better, right? Yeah. Um, you know, streaming video, how long have we been talking about it? Since the early nineties, but until we had, you know, 5G and, you know, one gig fast internet, it just wasn't, we, you couldn't have the Netflix world. That's why they started with DVDs. They knew they could see the future, but the tech wasn't ready. So I don't know, that comes back to my mistakes is you have to, you got to start with what is possible, then apply it to the existing world and be smart enough to know when the world just isn't ready. Yeah, love it, love it. Uh, well explained. And yeah, SpaceX changed the game, you know, to you to reuse all this <laughs> space machine. So yeah, love, awesome. And uh, uh, I want to ask the question uh, for two people. Second question. Um, uh, the first person, uh, founders of big companies who are looking for ways to learn the basic. Uh, from my experience, if I cooperate with founders, uh, co-founders, it doesn't matter, uh, decision makers uh, who know the basic, then we can uh, provide much better results. So, we, uh, but if they don't, it's tough. It's really tough to explain something, to go ahead. Um, it's like, for example, let's take the topic weight loss. If someone wants to lose weight, they need to understand why it's important to eat healthy food, to train hard, to drink water. Uh, because the best experts can't help these people if they don't understand why it's important. <clears throat> I think it's the same with uh, design thinking with any other niche. So, um, and the second uh, person, students who are looking for ways to learn from scratch. Uh, considering that we have AI today, we have new technologies, tools. So uh, let's help both founders, uh, decision makers, students. Uh, if you started today from scratch without any experience, knowledge, skills, it's your first day in design thinking. What will you do if you started everything from scratch? Boy, um, how do I answer that question? Um, I think, so you almost described three people there, right? Like, so, yeah. you know, right, I'm the student, I'm just in design thinking. I'm gonna start with, um, you know, a little bit of where we left off. Everything you've learned was all great in the classroom and, you know, in the books and, and whatever. Applying design thinking to the real world, when you get to real world constraints and human behavior, you just have to know it's all gonna break. You know, and this is a little about about life. Like you know, Mike Tyson has one of the greatest quotes ever. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the yeah. face, right? Okay. And and the key is, I mean, you know, I've got two college age children, and what I try to the thing that I can most teach them is life is going to punch you in the face all of the time. There is no such thing as not getting punched in the face. And I, you know, my kids, you know, I grew up with not very much, and um, you know, my you know dad was an immigrant, and my mother didn't work, and um, you know, what has been half of my success was just not 
accepting all the failure and the resistance, et cetera, it's resilience, right? And fighting my way through it. It wasn't that it was a straight line. My kids have grown up much better than I did in that respect, nice schools, affluent neighborhoods. So they've started, you know, with such advantage, but guess what? Life's still going to be mean to them too. Um, having, you know, having a billion dollars doesn't mean life isn't mean to you. So the key is what do you do? And, and I think in design thinking the, the, you know, if you come out with these, you know, you believe you've got the answer and the solution and the rubric to solving all these problems and it isn't so easy. Applying is very difficult. If it was easy, everybody would do it and we wouldn't need any of these people. Um, uh, so that's the first is failure is more common than, than not. And it's the art of taking what's possible and making it what's probable um, or practical. Um, and that means making trade-offs, right? Not everything is going to be perfect. And by the way, not everything has to be perfect. Mm -hmm. This is the thing that most, the design thinkers that get most hung up is they stick, they, they're stuck in the normative. They're stuck in what should be, right? They're stuck in why do they even flag his credit card at the gas station? They should just let it go. Right, just let it go. Why? Why bother? It's forty bucks. It's Anatoly. He's not doing anything. He's not the fraudster. Without understanding all those things, so I think the first thing you, you got to understand is there's a lot of problems and difficulties. The best design thinkers figure out how to apply them to the world as it is. Get the important things through. Not everything is important, right? You know, the you can chop off your toe and still live. Um, blood coming out of your aorta. That's something you got to deal with. And sometimes you got to chop off all your toes so you have time to fix the blood coming out of the aorta. If you're so fixated on the design things that are really your toes, which you don't need, you like them, they're important, but you can live without them. You're not going to live if you bleed out. So that's the, for students, I think you got to understand there's way more constraints and practicalities that you're going to have to accept. And the art is to figure out which of those. Founders, I think it's a slightly different problem because they figured they really figured one thing out, whatever the insight was, whatever the idea was, that was what made them brilliant. That doesn't mean they're brilliant at anything else, um, but they assume it. In fact, when I was in business school, a professor said to me, become an expert at one thing and people will assume you're an expert at everything. That is true that they assume it. It is not true that you are an expert in everything. <laughs> this, is, this is why we listen to you know, celebrities about politics or whatever the heck it is. Why? Because they learned how to act. Um, that suddenly makes them an expert in Middle Eastern politics. Um, uh, so this I think is the biggest founder's problem is they assume because they got something right, that means they can get everything right and they stop listening. This is especially true in marketing, especially true with things like design, and especially true when you're talking about engineers who came up with some solution. They came up with a solution and that's great, but that doesn't mean they un understand a darn thing about customers or design thinking or how to run a company or scale a company. Um, and so I would tell you if there's the one, the greatest skill you can ever amass is self-awareness. Understand mm -hmm. what you're good at and what you're not and how to rely on everybody else. And, you know, Steve Jobs gets quoted a lot for a lot of things, but I think actually Steve Jobs is in many ways, almost best talent was this, right? I don't hire good people to tell them what to do. I hire oh, yeah. good people to tell me what to do. Um, so now that requires a lot of trust and humility, um, mm -hmm. at, right? And judgment to go hire the best people and then learn how to listen to them. 
Um, and this is where this is where I think more founders get wrong than right. Um, and they don't know that what what they were really good at was being a founder. They're, that doesn't mean they're really good at being a CEO or scaling a company or those kinds of things. Um, then you get to large companies, um, right? I think the the hardest thing with design thinking is this. Go back to the Clayton Christensen story or the Innovators Dilemma story I was talking about, which is what makes you really successful in a large. <clears throat> most people have success in a large company by avoiding risk and not getting in trouble. Um, but, but if you actually look at people who make it all the way to the top, they took smart, calculated risks and they recovered, whether it was at that company or was at somewhere else. So it's a little bit of a conundrum, right? You can take not too many risks and you can actually rise and do well in a company um, and get nice bonuses or whatever, but you'll never get to the top. To get to the top, you have to take calculated risk. But again, calculated risk. Go back to, can I recover from it? Um, is this the right moment? Um, right. You know, can I learn fast? So it's not a catastrophic risk. It's an acceptable risk, right? Can I actually take this failure here or this, I shouldn't not even failure this learning this, it didn't quite work out in this job and use that actually to get a different job. That's even better because I took the risk over here. Um, and that's a very different sort of calculation, um, calculation set, but for everybody, you know, what I would suggest is in today's day and age just be a learner, right? You know, I was a history and political science major. Um, I started in sales, then I became a digital product manager, then I became an analyst. I started in one industry, but my very first report was in an industry I didn't know anything about. Um, and I learned a bunch of other industries. I've worked in just about every sub-vertical of financial services. I've done just about every job except for HR and finance. The more experience I have then really means the more failures I've had the more lessons I've learned, which makes me much more powerful now. Every job I have, I already know where all the landmines are. I know how to make those calculator risks and how to make those trade-offs. I can only, you can only get that with experience and with learning. And usually it's by learning how to fail and recover from your failures and admitting your failures or defining yeah. them. They, they weren't failures, they were lessons. Yeah, love it, love it. Uh, I, I think Apple still has this policy to hire people who can uh teach them how to work including interns uh, if you open apple.com you can find uh this section about interns uh, that they need to teach the biggest company in the world how to work <laughs> so yeah love it love it yeah awesome policy and uh, uh you mentioned many times about possible uh can we do it uh it's possible to do it uh we we need to calculate this risk but what about crazy ideas for example uh what i found sometimes we can set up schedule i don't know like crazy ideas like sony for example sony uh decided to change uh uh, uh division of japan companies after the second uh, world war uh to show that Japan can create high quality products because uh, all world uh, what that Japan can create only poor quality products. Uh, Elon Musk, for example, decided to uh, send humans to Mars. So, uh, and many big companies have this crazy ideas uh, to change the world. Uh, and when you see in the beginning, it looks like it's impossible. And you mentioned that it's important to to have possible uh, ideas. Can you tell 
can we do it or not? To, I mean, like to create crazy ideas that uh, looks impossible, but during the way you can change the picture or probably if you want to achieve maximum, then you can achieve minimum. It it will be great too, you know, to get results with minimum. So any tips about that? I, you know, what, here's the thing. You don't know it's possible. I, I start with, I, I like to say that the only difference between insanity and brilliance is outcomes. Every mm -hmm. person who was considered brilliant was first considered insane. And, and until it was successful. And now not everybody, by the way, who is insane is brilliant, um, <laughs> right? And not every insane idea is a brilliant idea. Some of them will be, but you have to start with insane ideas, um, which again, ignore, they ignore the rules of the world as we know them. They question assumptions. That doesn't mean if you question, by the way, it's true, right? Some things are gravity is gravity. You can keep questioning it, um, but it is, it's true. Now, if you question, can we can we um, do something about gravity? Now you end up with things like rockets. Um, so I didn't I didn't change gravity, but I changed my assumption that we can't overcome gravity if gravity is, you know, insurpassable. And so and I can't remember the name of the movie. I'm trying to find it actually while I'm talking to you. Um, but it's actually to me, it's what it and this is about design thinking. It's about so many lessons. I will find it and get it to you. You can get it to, to all yeah, the yeah. listeners after if I can't find it before we get off the call here. But the if you go back and watch this movie, it's about the starting of a company, I think in 1989, that literally invented almost everything we know about mobility today, mm -hmm. back in the early 90s. I suspect most of your watchers and listeners have never heard of it and don't realize that um, you know, the people who, who created Android or um, iOS or the iPhone and the Google phone and so many other things, they all came from this one company that was built in the early 90s that at the time was, was we didn't even call them unicorns, but they were a unicorn and they raised more money than anybody else. Um, and they literally assembled maybe the best talent in the valley in one company that had ever been assembled before or since, and they failed um depending on how you define failure back to the earlier conversation they failed because for so many reasons and the documentary talks about bad decisions they made etc the vision of the ceo which none of them have uh, none of us have ever heard from again since this failure um was he literally saw today 50 years ago but it wasn't possible 50 or 40 years ago whatever the heck 30 years ago it just wasn't possible we didn't have the cell networks we have. We didn't have the chips that we have. We didn't have the displays that we have. We didn't have the consumer behavior that we have. And so, you know, the 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 just because you have an insane idea doesn't mean the conditions are ready for it. That doesn't mean that it wasn't right. It just meant it wasn't right now that way. And and I again, I'll find it for you because it's such a great example of everything about what they were doing was right protocols for email that we use for, you know, um, electronic, or, you know, sort of over the air email, the first emojis, all of this stuff was created by this company, none of which came to life through that company, but all of those people left and went other places and created all kinds of amazing things based on those lessons and those learnings and those failures. And so, you know, you have to have insane ideas, but you also have to know sometimes, I mean, Tesla had, and I mean, the original Tesla, had lots of ideas. He may still be right about 
air to air electricity. It might have just taken us 150 years to figure out how. It mm -hmm. didn't mean he was wrong. It just meant you couldn't do it in the early 1900s. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Nice. Nice. Yeah, James. And uh, I. Uh... I have a lot of questions, uh, but uh, uh, I will ask only one question because we have uh, the podcast limit. And guys, if you have a lot of questions like me, you can follow uh, James on social media. I will put all links, so uh, ask directly, uh, reach out to him. But I have my final question, very important, about AI. You mentioned a few times about AI. And um, uh, when ChatGPT appealed, uh, I see some people, uh, according to data, 5% of marketers, content creators lost their jobs. Uh, but I increase my results with AI. I implement, adapt to almost everything that I have. And I increase. And I think people didn't lose jobs because of AI. I think they lost jobs because someone implemented AI and can replace them, you know, to use this tool. I, I want to ask you about how to implement AI in design thinking and uh, from your experience, how to do it better uh, to, the, to the process to, I don't know, to become better than your competitors. Oh boy. I mean, uh, we don't have enough time. You gotta have to bring me back. I can do a whole session on AI. Um, a couple things about AI. First of all, AI was invented in the 19, late forties and early fifties. So mm -hmm. it did not start with ChatGPT. Um, and there's the first thing is if you, if you're starting, if you just figured out that AI has arrived, you, you've missed 70 years of attempts at doing this. Um, the second thing is I don't believe a single person so far has lost their job to AI in marketing that's coming potentially, but it isn't, that's just, that, that makes for a great headline. It's just BS, um, uh, right now, most, very few companies are applying AI in any kind of meaningful way where they would see it. They might dream of that but they're not doing it yet. Um, history suggests every new technology ends up actually creating more jobs and more opportunities in aggregate. And you know, my favorite example is you still see people running around with little yellow hats at construction sites with pickaxes and shovels. Um, they were doing that 120 years ago because that's how you dug a foundation. They're still there today, but there's fewer of them. You know where all those people went? They're the ones building the John Deere backhoe. And they, somebody had to design that backhoe and build that backhoe and service that backhoe and sell that backhoe. So the jobs shifted and there's more people involved in that ecosystem than there were construction work. Uh, so, you know, in the totality of, of uh, uh, you know, when we didn't have those. But if you were a construction worker, you might have lost your job. And that's what's likely to happen here um, is we'll see lots of new jobs get created. Um, if you're a marketer, and I literally have a picture of a tech stack I built at a growth company um, uh, just before I took this new job. I have AI helping with literally every single part of the marketing stack. Um, what that would likely mean not is that I was firing people, but it probably meant I didn't have to hire as many more people. Um, or I was going to actually be able to hire a lot more people because I was making more business impact, but I would be hiring fewer new people than I would have if I didn't have these tools to give me incredible leverage, right? I mean, I had a 23 person um, marketing team at one of my previous companies. We were running 300 simultaneous campaigns in 10 languages in 37 different verticals. How? Because we used AI 
to yeah. so you know my my two writers could produce the work of 20 writers um and we could translate it very easily etc so i didn't fire anybody um and i actually didn't get to hire a lot more but i got to do a lot more and if the yeah. business was successful i would get to hire more or i would get more program dollars so this is one of those if you're worried that it's going to take your job you're not adding enough value in your job and you need to find ways to add value and and ask yourself right is that really you know is writing you know business content really so valuable or is it knowing how to get the ai to write an even better piece of content yeah because the truth is there's a lot of very mediocre writers or mediocre mar marketers and i'll leave you with this stat especially because i know we're at the end in 2000 give or take when we first start saw online travel everybody declared the death of the travel agent um, and back then by the way travel agents made 95 percent of their money by getting um, ticket fees from the airlines today there are more travel agents in the united states of america than there were in the year 2000 the supposed year of the death of the travel agent now they only make five percent of their revenue by selling airline tickets because most of us buy our tickets direct but then we go to new places and we travel more than ever before and we need travel agents to help us find the excursions and the experiences in these unique places which is difficult yeah there's information so are travel agents gone? No. Are a lot of travel agents gone who didn't make the transition? Possibly, probably, but we still need travel agents. They just now add different and better value than they did before because there really wasn't a lot of value with them before in giving us airline tickets. They were just the only ones who had access to the service and so, you know, into the to the to the systems. Um this is going to happen in marketing. It and I actually think it's going to be the most profound impact marketing is going to change more in the next five years than it ever has bigger than the or, or the how the internet has changed how we market and it's going to be ai driven but that doesn't mean anybody has to lose their job but it does mean they have to change very much how they view their job and they view their value yeah i agree i agree i think uh, it's time to adapt to adapt to ai and ai can help uh, i use a lot of ai we, we translate text with ai we edit context with AI and what about quality for example if you uh, when we got mentions on CNN uh, uh, with content that was uh, edited with AI it means quality because CNN can <laughs> recognize the quality we, we got traffic from Japan Turkey Arabic uh, languages we don't speak this language we don't know anything but we translate with AI and then we uh, stop call, uh, to cooperate with translators we don't need these people anymore uh, so uh, it doesn't mean that all translators can uh, lose jobs they can adapt to think how to scale their jobs you know uh, to become prompt experts to uh, to edit results so yeah it doesn't work for I, us I, I, I actually think we're going to end up with more translators and here's why before AI you couldn't afford to translate your content right mm -hmm. so you so you didn't right so you didn't actually replace anybody because you couldn't afford it anyway it wasn't scalable um, yeah. for a small business right now are there cases where somebody did pay for that where the 80 percent version of an ai because ai is never as good as a uh it will or rarely does any technology get as good as a bespoke human solution um rarely sometimes it's better but very rarely this sort of like clothes a $5,000 handmade tailor suit is still better than anything you'll buy off the rack. Is it worth 20 times the cost? That's an interesting question.
but it's still always better. The truth was 5,000 or whatever, 500 years ago, nobody could have, only a few people could afford $5,000 suits. Now everybody can afford yeah. suits, but not everybody can afford $5,000 suits. It is still better to have an in-person meeting than to do a Zoom. Um, but you know what Zoom is better for then? Picking up this old thing and having mm. just an audio call, which is what we used to do. So it didn't stop us from getting on planes. It did stop us from doing stupid plane trips. Um, and, and it's not as good, but it's way better than what it was. And now we do lots more business and lots more stuff with video and we still get on planes and AI will do the same thing, right? It's, it's, it'll replace a few people who aren't adding value, but it's actually gonna yeah. make more people like you use translation. And then when this show gets really big and it becomes more important that those translations are perfect, suddenly you're gonna have translators editing those transcripts, and, uh, right? Because now perfection or near perfection matters for you. Um, and you would never have hired those people before. So I actually think it's more, not less. Yeah, uh, I, I think we can compete today without someone who can handle or uh, check the quality because many companies still ignore translations. But when others will jump to this field, yeah, it's better to uh, hire someone who can check and edit to make this perfection. Today, when competition is low, we don't need it. And let me share my life hack, how we can do it. Uh, we usually translate from English to Ukrainian, Russian, uh, languages that we understand we can speak. And if we see that we don't need to change anything, then we can translate to plus a uh, hundred other languages. <laughs> so simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I, I spent some time in the translation industry and let me tell you, just because it works, you might work into the Slavic languages, but then work not so well into the, you know, yeah. character-based languages, et cetera, right? Um, but all that said, uh, again, you know, the it, it's better, it is better that you can translate even imperfectly than not perfectly, because otherwise you'd never get to people in those other languages. Uh, yeah. At some point, it needs to not just get better, but to get closer to perfect and yeah and, but that'll still be cheaper for you to do with the ai first and with the editing than with with the full translation and that actually means more value for you more value for people in these other languages than ever before so it's a win really for everybody and again this is every technology that doesn't mean there's not a lot of short-term disruption because there will be there'll be a lot of short-term disruption but that's not a reason not to do it that's a reason to our earlier discussion to learn to pivot to grow, to figure out the failure point, figure out your value, value be self-aware um, and adapt because the world is changing faster than any of us can keep up with. Awesome, awesome, love it. Uh, uh, thanks a lot for taking your time, for sharing all these valuable bombs. You, you lead me to an emergency room, I need to spend time to think how to <laughs> design <laughs> thinking what I have. Uh, tell the best way how to keep learning from you, how to reach out to you, how to follow you. Yeah, um, right now, LinkedIn is the best way, just uh, um, uh, whatever, linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash jpunishal. Um, it's where I'm most active um, uh, since Twitter is just not a place to be active anymore and I haven't really um, spent enough time on on, on threads and uh, sort of I view IG and Snap and some of the other things as my sort of, those are my personal zones, not my... Uh, my corporate zones. But if you want to hear those sort of the random musings of an old guy who's got a lot of uh, um, scars and lessons and hopefully wisdom, uh, uh, LinkedIn's the place to do it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, I sent you in the uh, connection request, guys. I recommend to anyone to follow Jam to on LinkedIn. 
because you can see a lot of valuable insights. So you want to get great results. You want to find the right direction. It's better to follow because it's tough to ask all questions and many things are changing. We need to update what we have. So I love following great people who can lead me uh, to another direction. Okay, guys, love you. See you. Thanks for tuning in to Unmess. Enjoyed the show? Drop us a review on your favorite platform and help us spread the digital marketing wisdom. See you next episode.